Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. I'm Chase Cannon. I'm here with my colleague, Suzanne Spradley. We are both attorneys with NFP's legal and compliance team, and we are on the podcast to break down some of the challenging and complicated issues that are in front of employers with respect to their group health plans and compliance. Suzanne, happy April. Welcome to uh, Q2, I guess. And um, we are going to go through, um, we never have a moment of dull, dullness in our in, in our world. And uh, we have a court case coming out of Texas relating to the ACA's preventive service mandate. This has been in the news, uh, lots of employers, lots of the industry following this. Um, but can you, Suzanne, can you start us with a quick overview of, of what this case is all about? I can, but first, happy birthday, Chase. On uh, oh, April 11th, this, it is Chase's birthday. But um, <laughs> as you mentioned, you. the at the end of last month, a federal district court in Texas um, issued an opinion and an order that in a case that was titled Braidwood Management versus Becerra, and Becerra is the secretary of HHS. And this is a case that vacates the implementation and enforcement of certain preventive services that are required by the ACA. So before we jump into the lawsuit, I know that we've all um, been dealing with the preventive services, but I want to level set quickly on the requirements. And the ACA requires group health plans and health insurers issuing um, individual coverage to provide certain preventive services without cost sharing. So the preventive services include a wide range of of different uh, healthcare services, including screening tests and immunizations and counseling and medications. And um, they are all related around certain items. And so those those uh, preventive services are based on, number one, the United States Preventive Services Task Force, or we can call it the PSTF. Um, when they make recommendations on preventive services and rate them as A or B, they are automatically added um, to the mandate. Then secondly, the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, or ACIP, when they make recommendations regarding immunizations, they're added. And then lastly, the Health Resources and Services Administration, it's an arm of HHS or an agency of HHS, the HRSA, when they put out guidelines for women's preventive services and preventive screenings for infants and children, those guidelines are also added to the mandate. So a lot of acronyms, but just wanted to level set on what we're talking about, about uh, the ACA preventive services provisions. Yeah, thank you, Suzanne. And that's very helpful. And in the acronyms, we love those in our world. Uh, but I think they're going to be very helpful as we walk through this case, because there's some some reasons we need to know about the differences there. Um, so so before we get that to that, though, and sort of what the court says, I, I know there have been over 2000 lawsuits of, of various forms challenging provisions of the AC, several of them challenging the entire ACA. And so we've kind of lived in that world for the last, uh, you know, 11, 12 years, uh, but since since the ACA was enacted. But in, in this instance, in this case, explain to us who are the plaintiffs and, and what are they alleging? Well, this is definitely more narrow than the entire ACA, but the plaintiffs are um, two business owners and six individuals who are Christians, 
and they object to certain services that are required to be provided under the preventive care mandates for a mixture of religious and economic reasons. And so they they are alleging certain unconstitutional grounds and otherwise. So for specifically, they challenge that these various, um, well, the task force, the ACIP and the HRSA, their recommendations are unconstitutional on the grounds of the um, that they violate the appointments clause, the vesting clause, and the non-delegation doctrine, which we'll jump into in just a moment. They also argue that the requirements violate the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or the RFRA, with respect specifically to requiring coverage of PrEP, which is a pre-exposure prophylactic, um, and that is a medication that's taken to prevent getting HIV, like Truvada, or uh, I believe I said that correctly. But um, so there's very constitutional and other arguments that they are basing this on, and that's a mouthful. Right. So let's let's unpack that just a little bit. It sounds like there's basically three different arguments, um, starting with this idea of the appointments clause. Uh, right. Can you walk us through each of those? Yes. So the appointments clause is part of the U.S. Constitution, and it provides that, in quote, officers of the United States, unquote, may only be appointed by the president subject to the advice and consent of the Senate. And they claim that members of the PSTF, ASIP and HRSA are officers of the United States, and they have not been appointed in conformity with the appointments clause. Um, because they are not nominated by the president, obviously, and they're and uh, nor are they approved by the Senate. Rather, members of these bodies are appointed by heads of the agencies with, within HHS, and they're asking the court to declare that all of the mandates that are based on their recommendations are unconstitutional, contending that the ACA does not allow for the Secretary of State or the directors of the agencies within HHS to reject the recommendations that are made by um, these committees. And so therefore there's insufficient oversight. So in other words, for example, the PSTF's members, which include um, 16 volunteer scientists and medical professionals are not appointed by the president or confirmed by the Senate, yet their recommendations are binding. In response, the HHS contends that this is really kind of normal course, that there's a number of different statutes that incorporate by reference independent recommendations, and they cite different examples. So, for example, there's a public health regulation that relates to water standards for consumer products, and they outsource the development of those standards to a non-governmental um, organization. And so they say this is really normal course, that uh, it's not unusual to have these other bodies making recommendations and guidelines. Right. So it sounds a little bit like uh, a processes type of argument. The uh agency didn't go through the right process in appointing the uh, officers here that are sort of deciding deciding coverage mandates, essentially. Um, and then in response, HHS is basically saying, well, there may, there's other situations where this has happened and there, nobody seemed to raise a flag over there. Okay, so that's kind of the first argument. What about this uh, second argument that relates to the, uh, the so-called non-delegation doctrine? Right. So we won't spend a lot of time on this, but but briefly, the non-delegation doctrine is a principle that Congress cannot delegate its legislative powers to other entities. And so the plaintiffs contend that the the ACA's preventive services provision violates this doctrine because these various entities, the PSTF, ACIP, and HRSA, um, they exercise decision-making without Congress providing guidance. So in other words, the ACA gives authority on the agencies to decide what preventive services are covered, but it lacks any real guidance in their decision making. So they're given broad discretion 
And without getting into any detail on these arguments, I'll just note that they were really rejected by the court. So we'll get into that a bit more. But um, the non-delegation is is really not a winning argument in this context. Right. Okay. So that one sounds a little bit more like authority related, like they didn't quite have the authority to do what they were trying to do. So going to have a processes problem being argued here, an authority problem being argued. And let's move on to the next one, which seems to be about religion. Right. Right. So the plaintiffs allege that the requirements to cover PrEP, that's that uh, pre-exposure prophylactic, violates the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And it it relies on the Supreme Court's ruling in Hobby Lobby case. I'm sure you all remember that. But the plaintiffs contend that the employers are really left with a Hobson's choice, which means no choice at all. And Chase, we used to do this. We used to delve kind of into some little history lessons. And I just thought I'd jump into this one real quickly. Where does that term come from? Yeah. The term Hobson's choice comes back to the 16th century. There was a man named Thomas Hobson who worked as a licensed carrier between Cambridge and London, England. And he kept horses for that purpose. And he rented those horses out to students when he wasn't using them. And so the students always wanted their favorite horse. And so some of the horses became overworked. So he implemented this plan that that they could only rent the horse that was nearest the stable door or none at all. And so this rule became known as Hobson's choice. And so people started using that term to mean no choice at all in various situations. So if we take that going back to this case, the argument is that the plaintiffs would have to provide health insurance that covers medication and services that violate their religious beliefs or have to refuse to offer any health insurance to their employees. So they were not given a, a true choice. Um, so more specifically, they state that the requirement to cover PrEP imposes a substantial burden on the religious freedom uh, because they oppose homosexual behavior on religious grounds, claiming that these drugs facilitate and encourage homosexual behavior, prostitution, sexual promiscuity, and IV drug use. Um, they also contend that the provision violates individuals who have religious objections and want to purchase insurance that does not include PrEP coverage. Right. Okay. So those are the three arguments. Again, that's kind of a processes argument, an authority or power argument that wasn't there, um, and then religion. So what? What's uh, tell us how the court came out on all these arguments? Well, we we've got to go back to September of last year, um, and that's when the ruling on this case um, really occurred. Judge O'Connor previously found in Braidwood back in September that among other things, the PSTF experts appointments did violate the appointments clause, but it did not rule on what would be the appropriate remedy for that violation. And so it it asked for additional briefing on the issue. And that's where we um, are in March. Following that briefing, um, they reviewed the briefs. And in March, the, um, the, the court vacated all actions that are taken to enforce the PSTF preventive services coverage requirements. So again, reminding you that when that United States Preventive Services Task Force um, imposes an A or B rating on a preventive service, that thereby makes it a mandate um, to cover at no cost sharing. And so once they are rated A or B, they are um, part of the mandate. And so it enjoined that uh, response and any enforcement requirements in the future. But it's important to note that if you go back to the September ruling, the court dismissed the ASIP and the HRSA claims and the non-delegation doctrine argument, as I mentioned previously. So the preventive services requirements under ASIP, like immunizations and vaccines and the HRSA, so those were the women's preventive care recommendations like 
contraceptive coverage requirements and preventive screening for children. Those have not been affected by this ruling. Um, and so you wonder if you take a step back and you say, okay, why did the appointments clause impact the preventive services task force, but it didn't impact the ACIP or HRSA? Um, and so you dig into a bit on how you, you look into um, these various agencies, we'll call them. The task force has members that are appointed by an HHS agency called the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, or AHRQ. And it is one of the 12 agencies within HHS. And so when the task force makes recommendations, they are not subject to AHRQ oversight or approval. Whereas if you look at ASIP, um, their members are selected by the secretary of HHS, but their recommendations are reviewed by the CDC director. So there is oversight. And similarly, the HRSA uses external organizations to make recommendations, but their recommendations may be accepted or rejected by um, HRSA. So there is oversight in those other two instances, whereas with the Preventive Services Task Force, there is not. So their, their recommendations are um, then just become part of the mandate. So that's why there is a bifurcation um, in looking at the appointments clause with the various three agencies, we'll call them. Thank you for explaining that, Suzanne, because that, that's that's really a source of confusion, I think, out there in the news and just in gen general understanding of what this case means. We've seen headlines, you know, saying entire, I don't know if they use the word entire, but ACA preventive service mandate struck down, understanding that there's a little bit of a bifurcation there on what we're talking about with which preventive services um, sort of are invalidated here. What about the PrEP and the religion or religious RFRA argument? What did the court say there? Well, the court did accept that argument. And so they did find that PrEP was uh, that mandate did violate the plaintiff's right under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And so they enjoined the departments from enforcing that mandate against the plaintiffs. So what what now in terms of what is happening uh, with the case itself? Can it be appealed? Right. Yes. Yeah. So the final judgment in Braidwood was entered on March 30th. And so both parties have 60 days to appeal the decision up to the Fifth Circuit. And we certainly expect the administration to appeal um, both the, the religious aspect and the uh, PSTF uh, decision. Um, the district court is is not required to grant a stay if requested, which, of course, it will be requested. Um, and if it does not, the administration will likely request a stay at the Fifth Circuit. Right. And, and for our listeners, a stay means basically everything would be put on hold, meaning no changes for now. Uh, the court's ruling is on hold. Uh, so everything would kind of continue as it was before um, until the, the appellate level court was able to, to make their judgment or ruling. So what, what does this mean for group health plans? And when you address that, talk about both in the fully insured and, and in the self-insured context. Well, for in reality, it probably doesn't meet anything immediately, at least in fully insured plans. They'll likely remain um, the same throughout their policy year. And many states have actually implemented laws that don't allow for that that mid-year change. But I would check with your respective carrier. Uh, more than likely, the preventive uh, services will will continue being covered at no cost sharing throughout the rest of the policy year. For self-funded plans, plans may consider making mid-year changes, um, but uh, you know, recognize that they will want to watch because the decision could be stayed, as we just discussed. And if so, 
they would not have that ability to make the mid-year change. Um, if they are able to make that change, uh, just remember that any changes would also likely trigger the summary of benefits and coverage advance notice rules. So that requires a plan to provide 60 days advance notice of any plan change that would impact the content of the SBC. Um, and certainly, you know, removing a prevented coverage, um, one of these preventive services, or even just the cost sharing associated with it would uh, likely impact uh, the SBC. Yeah, and that's really important to, those notice requirements can be really burdensome on companies. And so it's good that we sort of talk about that. And a lot, a lot of the times the changes that are made occur at open enrollment, right? So we don't have this advanced notice requirement idea, but if, if plans do want to make changes like this, it is going to trigger that and and that can be a challenge. So the court's ruling appears unlikely to have any real immediate impact on plans and in, 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 in insurance companies. Well, I think that's right. But, you know, remember that the decision, um, if the decision remains, of course, absent any congressional action to the contrary, then plans and issuers will have that flexibility in the manner in which they decide to cover preventive services going forward. So we'll, we will just have to watch both for the stay and, and find out if the decision remains um, upon appeal or if Congress uh, takes action. Right. Okay. What else do plans need to consider here? There's always something, you know, that uh, a, an, a cor correlating impact or, or something that happens that maybe is not in, quite as anticipated. Is there any of that going on here? Yes. Well, remember, there are preventive services that impact the HSA rules. Um, and But also the HSA rules are uh, governed by the IRS, so different agency. And so those uh, preventive services that permit um, the coverage of preventive services before you meet the deductible with HSA contributions, then um, that likely remains as is, again, because the IRS dictates those rules and so different controlling agency. Um, I will say there's a secondary question that relates to mental health parity. There's an open question. Um, mental health, there is mental health parity relief when a plan covers these preventive drugs only to comply with the mandate. So let's say that mandate is removed, the plan continues to cover it anyway. Is there no longer the mental health parity relief that's there presently? So open question there um, and really on how that would play out while we're in the interim with trying to find out what happens on appeal. Right. Okay. So a couple of extra things to kind of watch there with the HSA and the, the IRS and their definition of preventive services, that can be a source of frustration, I know, because it's, you know, we hear preventive services, I'm doing air quotes, uh, but it may have different meanings or different application in different contexts. And this is a, an example of that. And then with mental health parity, we'll just have to see if there's any type of guidance that comes out. And again, that all comes back to whether this court case is stayed and what the appellate level court says, or maybe even goes up to the Supreme Court. We'll have to see on that. We will continue to monitor all of that in our publication, Compliance Corner, which comes out every second Tuesday. And um, that, that's where we sort of track developments. And we are definitely uh, following this one very closely. So thank you, uh, Suzanne, for walking through this ruling. Any final thoughts here on, on, on the case out of Texas? Well, I I think really just a reminder that even though this was a district court ruling in Texas, it does apply nationwide and it does have uh, effect immediately from a legal perspective until it is stayed, of course. So we will be on the watch for that. Um, and as a reminder, as Chase had mentioned earlier, although this is you know impacting 
certain preventive services. It doesn't, it does not impact all of them. And it certainly doesn't impact just, um, you know, the viability of the ACA in general. So just, uh, it is more narrow than it's been, I think, represented broadly, but there it an impact nonetheless. Right. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Suzanne, for walking us through that this case. We really appreciate it. And as we like to say on the podcast, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining us, everyone.